to jump in the water and out of the blue comes this this thing that's the size of a bus that's actually coming straight towards you with its mouth open. Thankfully, it's a filter feeder, so the mouth is very, very large, but not very dangerous. But it was still an amazing experience. Not a shock, but just left me in awe. And I just moved to the side and let this beautiful creature just pass by me. And um, I I still remember that moment. Our natural world inspires and shapes us, so it's critical that we work to protect it. I'm Alex Honnold, professional rock climber and founder of the Honnold Foundation, and this is Season 2 of Planet Visionaries. As a climber, I've been fortunate enough to see both the beauty and fragility of our planet. That's why I'm proud to be joining Rolex and the Washington Post Creative Group to bring you stories of inspiring people who are helping solve some of the most important conservation issues that we face today. On this episode, I get to talk to anthropologist Shafkat Hussein and marine biologist Brad Norman. In 2006, they each won a Rolex Awards for Enterprise and have admired each other's work from afar, both interested to learn about the other's strategy for protecting their flagship species, the snow leopard and the whale shark. Welcome, guys. Thanks so much for chatting with me. Thanks for having me. I'm Brad Norman. I'm from Perth, Western Australia. Hello, thanks for having me. My name is Shafkat Hussain. I'm from Pakistan, from Lahore. Oh, pleasure. How did you guys both get drawn to your respective species? You know, I mean, talk a little bit about how you got into snow leopards, how you got into whale sharks. My first job was up in the mountains in northern Pakistan in a town called Skurdu. And my work was although related to economic development, but every now and then I would also come across angry farmers who would say that a precious goat or a cow that was given by our project to them has been killed and eaten by a snow leopard. Uh, So that kind of got me into thinking about snow leopards and their relationship with the local communities. So I set up a small nonprofit organization called Project Snow Leopard in order to resolve this conflict between farmers and, and snow leopards. That's a great story. I, I I also got involved a long time ago. Um, it was back in 94, actually. I went to um, Ningaloo Reef. It's on the northwest coast of Australia. It's, it's a place where the biggest fish in the sea, the whale shark, comes uh, regularly, predictably, each year. So little work had been done on whale sharks and it was just a perfect opportunity in my backyard to to try to learn a bit more about this animal and see what we could find about it to help with its long-term conservation. And we came up with a, a really interesting idea, which is simple, but uh, very effective. And it was using photo identification. The whale sharks have got this amazing pattern of, of spots across their skin that doesn't change over time, or we, we actually were able to prove that. And so it's a way of counting numbers of whale sharks and actually studying individuals using photo identification. Do you remember what it was like to see a whale shark for the first time? For me, it was an amazing experience because I'd never seen a whale shark, obviously, in the wild. And when I first started my research, and I'd hardly even seen them in books because so little was known about them. But to jump in the water and out of the blue comes this this thing that's the size of a bus that's actually coming straight towards you with its mouth open. Thankfully, it's a filter feeder, so the mouth is very, very large, but not very dangerous. But it was still an amazing experience. Not a shock, but just left me in awe. And I just moved to the side and let this 
beautiful creature just passed by me. And I still remember that moment today. And I've swum with thousands and thousands of whale sharks, but it was uh, it was certainly one of those experiences that stays with you for the rest of your life. That seems like an experience of being a prey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, well, the thing is, the thing is with these whale sharks, they were. They're so big, but they're so gentle. Yeah. And so yeah. once you get past that initial almost shock of seeing, you know, this something the size of a bus, as I said, coming straight towards you, you really do feel a little insignificant in the whole scheme of things. And and I think that's driven my work over the years to really want to, well, save the species, but also appreciate that we are a small part, but an important part of our planet. And we really have to make the most of what we're doing on the planet ourselves. And, and for you, Shafkat, seeing a snow leopard for the first time, I mean, what's it like to actually see the animals in the wild? I know you would ask <laughs> me this question. Um, so in my last 25 years of working on snow leopards, I've never seen one in the wild. Oh, interesting. That's classic. <laughs> so, yeah, so I was, you know, talking to my 90-year-old mother and I was said, you know, telling her that, you know, I really want to see a snow <laughs> leopard. And it's been 25 years I haven't seen one. And she says... No, what will you do when you will see a snow leopard? It will attack you and kill you. And told her, no, you know, it's a very gentle animal. You know, I'll survive. Uh, Just last year, I saw a mountain lion in the wild for the first time. And I have to say, it was a, it did kind of make my hair stand up a little bit. I was like, oh, I do feel like, like I I am prey. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It wasn't that big. But uh, but it still really sort of put me on edge. And I was like, that is that is an apex predator. You know, I was like, that is a powerful animal right there. That's cool. See, with the with the whale sharks, um, everybody as soon as they hear the word shark, they think, well, not everybody, but there's a lot of there's a lot of members of the public that have this innate fear of of sharks. But sharks are a beautiful group of animals, and they've got their place. And we're just you know we're lucky to be in the water with them i think in today's society as well it's got a calming effect and with so much stress going on in the world to be able to sort of turn off take your mind off things and and just be at one with nature is really healthy for humans in general and mentally you think you think that whale sharks provide sort of that sense of grandeur and awe that in Shafgat, i mean you're talking about the mountains and the karakoram that's very much the same idea when you experience those mountains it's that grandeur the awe that's like that that centering yeah i think you're absolutely right. You know, the Karakurams and the Himalayas, uh, the first thing you really get to understand there is scale. You see a mountain that is, you know, one right in front of you. And I've you know, seen this experience, you know, with my friends who have come to the mountains for the first time, especially to the Karakurams and Himalayas. And, you know, we are going on a trek and it's, where do we have to go? They ask. I said, you see that mountain there? And they say, oh, we'll get there in two hours. And we walk for two days and the mountain <laughs> is still there, right? You know, yeah. uh, the, the scale is something that really deceives people out there. And it can be dangerous as well, but it's also sublime. I, I'm kind of curious, were you each drawn to the species individually? Like, did, did you care about snow leopards or did you see an opportunity to help the livelihoods of the villagers there and, and you know, help and basically like find a hole in conservation that you felt like you could plug, you know, and, and same with whale sharks. Like, did you, did you care about whale sharks to begin with, or did you just see that this was an opportunity to do something positive in the world and help the species that needed help? For me, it was mainly, um, to be back in the region. That was the main reason I wanted to work on snow leopard. And so, you know, I'm a mountain lover, so I thought you, that you the best both. place to be, <laughs> so the best place that I can keep coming back and be in the mountains and really go, you know, 
in remote mountains, really into the heart of the Karakorams and the Himalayas is to follow the snow leopard. And then the other angles came in, uh, which is how to resolve the conflict, you know, thinking about local communities. Rural people generally are portrayed in scientific conservation literature. These people are not anti-conservation. They don't kill snow leopards because, you know, they just have this primordial instinct to go after predator and just take them out. Uh, they have a very good economic rationale and a reason for taking it out and trying to convince the conservation community and the general public about this is is a challenge uh, because we tend to kind of hear stories from the, you know, position of the snow leopard. Snow leopards are endangered, snow leopards are threatened, they are beautiful animals. But there's another side of the story and that story is those of those farmers who live with this predator day in, day out. And that story needed to be told. And I thought that our project does that pretty well. That's really interesting because um, we've both got a, a similar love for nature. I think you were talking about the mountains. Is, and for me, it's the ocean. Yeah, I like that you both found opportunities to do something useful in a place that you love. I love the ocean and I love sharks. And what better to work in the biggest of them all? And um, for me, it's one that's a friendly and gentle giant. So, you know, I'm only a small part of trying to make a difference with conservation of our, our ocean and the species within. But we've all got a part to keep it healthy for a perpetual planet, as we're, we're always sort of looking at. In their efforts to protect whale sharks and snow leopards, Brad and Shafkat have come up with creative solutions to work with the local communities where these animals live. Can you talk about the respective threats that your species face? Yeah, so the biggest threat is the retaliatory killing by angry farmers. That's across the globe. 25% of the snow leopard diet globally is domestic livestock. Wow. So you can make an argument that these farmers are unwittingly kind of sustaining snow leopards, right? Because there are laws, national laws, international laws that prohibit them from killing them. So they are kind of, you know, forced to provide this food subsidy to the snow leopards. But still, you know, killings go on. Uh, farmers do kill them. The other one, of course, is climate change. Contrary to the traditional belief, snow leopards are really rock leopards, so they're a bit like you, Alex. <laughs> they like to climb rocks you know, rather than snow. So we don't really know how reduced snow cover will affect their population. Mm. Well, unfortunately, it's um, a bit of an opposite with whale sharks. So the numbers of whale sharks globally have dropped down over the last 75 years or so. One of the biggest threats for whale sharks globally has been hunting. They're... They're hunted in very, very, very large numbers in the 90s. Part of it or a major part of it was for shark fins. Ah. So that's, that's a bad situation. But as you were alluding to with the, with the snow leopards, um, climate change is um, significant. And, you know, it's a bit of a, an inexact science in the future. We don't know how things are going to go, but it's something that is, is very, you know, clear and present danger. How have locals received your work? My side of things, it's been fantastic. From a local point of view, a local community, a local business perspective, it's really positive to be able to take some people swimming with whale sharks and charge to um, 
for the privilege. Um, it's great for the economics of a region. It's given the locals a, a changed sense of appreciation and desire to protect what's in their backyard. And that's really, really positive. So probably like what you were saying, Shafka, where you're providing a incentive for people not to kill snow leopards. It's it's sort of whale shark tourism. If um, is doing that, you know, in itself is there's a financial benefit of keeping these guys alive. Our experience of working for the last 24, 23 years has shown that this uh, approach works. Uh, local people have accepted our project. They have accepted the very fact that we want to protect snow leopard. And you have to put yourself in the local ecology and in the local context to understand how big of a step that is, because for them, the snow leopard is a quintessential predator, right? I mean, when you say that you want to protect a snow leopard, I remember 21, 22 years ago, they said, why? Why would you want to protect this animal? You know, what is it that you really like about it, right? So we are hoping that, you know, we have kind of laid good foundation for a sustainable kind of relationship between people and snow leopard in the future. In some ways, your two approaches to conservation couldn't be more different because, Brad, you know, you wind up with tons of people swimming with whale sharks and taking photos and documenting. And then Shafka, with 25 years of effort, you've never actually seen a snow leopard. <laughs> and, and yet both approaches seem like, or I guess the thing that they have in common is the fact that they're both using sort of creative ideas to, to solve a problem that's not not readily obvious. You know, it's like using innovative new ideas. Winning the Rolex Awards for Enterprise helped Shafkat and Brad take their work to new levels and get the attention of both their national governments. So you both won the Rolex Awards for Enterprise in 2006. What was your initial reaction to, to winning the award and, and what has that done for your work? Disbelief. <laughs> thought it was a bad joke. Uh, <laughs> I, thought, but, I thought it was a good joke. Don't worry. But yeah. <laughs> because I never expected to win. No, no. Because, you know, but um, yeah, I mean, that's been just one of the highlights of, I guess, my professional career, right? You know, to win the award and be recognized and then be in this illustrious company and be able to kind of tap into all this incredible knowledge source that is kind of resides in all these laureates. It's just incredible. I've been working with Rodney Jackson, a snow leopard laureate, 1984. Yeah. It was a long time ago, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. It <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he has been sort of my mentor, my guru, you know, everything that I learned. I'm an anthropologist, not a biologist, but, you know, all the ecological knowledge, you know, that I have gained is, of course, in, from the field, but also conversing with him and having this common thing between us that we are both Rolex Award winner has been just incredible. We have been able to collaborate, in fact, uh, collaborating for the last year since we, I won the Rolex Award for the last 15 years. And, of course, the... Uh, the recognition you get and the promotion you get is just wonderful, not only for us individually, but I think more for the kind of approach and the work and the message that we are, you know, trying to deliver. You know, in our case, for example, we really think that there is an alternative model to conservation, um, which is based on coexistence. But for Rolex to recognize this, um, and kind of provides the credibility 
to this argument, which has been extremely helpful. And now, you know, we, thanks to our project, insurance schemes and providing compensation to affected farmers is a feature of almost every country snow leopard project. Yeah, that's that's very similar. I I mean, when I got the gong for the Rolex Award for Enterprise, um, disbelief as, as, as well, and a, an amazing sense of pride, not only for my work, but those around me that have been working with me, which was really, really important. We've also had the opportunity to promote the project and build the I don't know, the citizen science project um, for whale sharks on a global scale. You know, as Shafkat was saying, the the opportunity to be, you know, in contact and share ideas, um, but also learn from the other laureates, it's it's amazing. And, you know, sometimes I'm in a I might be in a room or with some of these people and I that have, you know, gone to the moon or gone through space or gone to the deepest part of the ocean or, you know. Gone, you go gone, through an imposter syndrome. Oh, so true. <laughs> or, or gone up the biggest mountain, you know, in the world. Right. Yeah, it's been, it's been a great experience. It, it seems like each of you used uh, the opportunity to scale up your projects into other regions of the world. But um, but what does that look like for each of your projects? Like how, how did the project scale and, and what has that process been like for you? Our approach has been slow and steady, and the project that we expanded was a pilot project that ran for about six years. And then when we won the Rolex Award in 2006, we expanded it into 10 more valleys. The total habitat we are now covering is more than 5,000 square kilometer. Uh, It's still a small uh, part of the total habitat in Pakistan, but more importantly, This project now running for more than two decades has proven its logic, right? It has proven its uh, its worth. And now government is also interested in implementing a project along the same schemes. In fact, uh, the local government department, wildlife department were asking us if we can help them implement, you know, similar projects and with design these insurance schemes into other areas. So that is also a kind of very good news and very good situation for us that we always wanted other organizations to take up and expand it. In in some ways, do you see that as the ultimate success for your project for it to be taken up by the government? Exactly. Exactly. You have have just, you know, nailed it. Uh, Because, see, we are an NGO, right? So, you know, we uh, can't scale up. We are not responsible for the public trust that a state is, that a government is, right? So it's been really, really successful. And that would not have happened if you were not able to expand it and show that it can actually work, you know, on a larger scale. And the Rolex Award helped us do that. But but Alex, going back to what you're saying, as far as um, scaling it up, it really was that opportunity that came about as an extension from the Rolex Awards. I mean, again, working for an, an NGO like Shafkat, it was quite localised. But with the Rolex Award, I was able to go to 10 different countries and set up the photo ID library, or at least initiated that with training and, and encouraged places to get started, which was fantastic. Then talking about government taking up your system, I think it was in 2010, the state government brought in a licence requirement that every operator, every videographer on that boat had to take photos and use it as a monitoring tool. And it's a great thing that, um, you know, that it's it's been proven and expanded, um, I think, as a result of being fortunate enough to receive the Rolex Award for Enterprise. 
For Brad and Shafkat, the future of conserving whale sharks and snow leopards goes beyond the endangered species list. It means thinking about the health of the entire planet. So what do you each see as the next steps for your projects? I mean, it seems like they've scaled well, they're, they're working, being somewhat implemented by the government. You know, what, what are your, your hopes and aspirations for the, the projects moving forward? With whale sharks, the priority for me is getting them off the endangered list. Now, whether that's something that I can have an influence with, I don't know, but I'm hoping that the work that I do will go towards that ultimate goal. And part of it is to also build an appreciation and understanding about the importance of maintaining healthy oceans, maintaining a healthy planet, a perpetual planet. And what better way than to use flagship species like whale sharks or like like snow leopards to actually um, draw people in and get them excited about, you know, feeling as though they can make a difference. I completely agree with you that these megafauna, they have this appeal that we can use to engage the public and raise awareness. Our long-term goal is for our own institution and for our for existence is that we kind of work out ourselves out of our job, that we are no longer needed. <laughs> True. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, uh, as you said, that we want people on the community and the government to take over this job. Absolutely. And it just really does even highlight further, like we do the ocean, you know, there's so much we don't know. That's the, that's the, new frontier. And I hope that, you know, I can stay working in that environment. You know, I'm, I'm very but a small fry in this whole scheme of things to understand our, uh, our natural world. But we have to do that in order to keep it, you know, for, for the, ne- the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. What advice would you each give to the average person for how they can help keep the planet perpetual? I would say that people should look at things from different perspective. And I also think that we need to make models that are non-conventional, try to take nature outside of protected areas, welcome nature inside our homes. And that kind of artificial barrier that we have created, you know, nature over there, society over here, uh, we need to kind of cross those boundaries as much as we can. We all have the potential to benefit a long-term perpetual planet. And it can be as simple as being aware of what you're doing in your own house, you know, what you're throwing in the trash, what you're recycling or not recycling. Just be aware that every little thing that we do has other effects. Now, that doesn't mean don't do them, don't do them all, but just be aware. And then I think it'll just become natural that um, you want to protect it or do the right thing by it and keep it perpetual. Yeah, Brad, I can't help but think of uh, today I was climbing at a relatively obscure wall, like a cliff that's not very popular, and uh, somebody abandoned a backpack with a climbing rope and some basically like random equipment there. And uh, so, you know, it's a nylon bag with nylon ropes. It's all basically made of plastic and it's all photodegraded in the desert sun over the last however many years. And it's all like super fragile plastic that's crumbling. And so I I hiked it all down from the cliff today to to throw away because whenever I see that kind of thing outside, you're like, this is basically all plastic that's going into the ocean eventually. It's like it's going to be there forever. And 
every time I find things like that in the desert, you know, I sort of pack it out because you just know that eventually that's going onto a beach somewhere because yep. there's nowhere else for it to go. Everything we do has has a follow-up effect and we just need to minimise our impact where possible. But we have the potential, we have the ability. Um, it's just, again, knowledge, education and uh, a willingness to, to make a difference. We as humans have that ability. We just need to actually um, stand up and do it. I completely agree with you. And I think uh, there are other technologies which are coming out, our reliance on renewable and non-renewable energies decreasing. And uh, hopefully that will also bring about a cultural shift in which consumption, not only production, is also kind of, you know, viewed with, with seriousness. You know, hope that finally, you know, humans will come to a a, a point where they will realize that they can't have a perpetual planet without changing fundamental ways in which we live in this planet. Mm. I have to say, I do love that both of your projects are relatively counterintuitive. And I kind of love that both your projects work, but in ways that you don't expect. You know, I'm like, <laughs> oh, it's nice to see something interesting and new and, and I don't know, creative. Thanks. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. And, and we're just very fortunate to, um, to have great people that we work with and to have um, great species to work on. Yeah. And, yeah, and let me extend an invitation to you, Alex, if you want to climb Trango Tower, <laughs> please, you know, I'll be your host. <laughs> no, it's, it's funny you say that. That's actually probably at the top of my list for expeditions. Like I very much want to go eventually, but I've stood underneath it. Oh, yeah. I've seen it. It's beautiful. And, yeah. Well, was it was it sufficiently inspiring? I mean, is it good enough that I should go? Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> I'll change your life with just a pair of things. That's all you need down <laughs> That was marine biologist Brad Norman and anthropologist Shafkat Hussein. I'm Alex Honnold. Thanks for listening to Planet Visionaries. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, and leave a review to help others find it. And be sure to check out Season 1, where I talked with the first woman to walk on the seafloor, and a scientist who predicts volcanic eruptions, just to name a few. Thanks for listening, and check out the next generation of environmental innovators at Rolex.org.